Welcome to this week's episode of Daf Shui Weekly Daf. Give me 40 minutes or so and I'll give you a daf or so. I'm Arye Cohen, recording this episode from my closet studio in Los Angeles on a beautiful Cholamoid spring day, hoping that sooner rather than later we will have beaten this virus and once again we'll be able to enjoy outside. I am holding in my heart the frontline workers who are protecting us all, saving lives and flattening the curve, the grocery workers, the food delivery workers, the healthcare workers, the nurses and doctors, the technicians, the orderlies, Pray for their health and safety, and I commit to work every day so that we have better working conditions, better sick leave, and universal health care. I'm also thinking of those who are detained and are at risk because of the legacy of bad practices and lack of decent medical care in our jails and prisons, and also the impossibility of social distancing and the lack of face masks and soap and hand sanitizers. All the prisoners and detainees who are not a threat to our society should be immediately released. Okay, we're going to start on uh, Barabatra 20b um, at the Mishnah about five lines from the bottom of the page in the page format that was originally formatted by the brothers and widow Ram in Vilna, although these many years ago. The link to the page will be on the podcast information page. It's got to be a name for that, but I don't know what it is. Okay, here we go. So we're going to start. Now, today we're going to go into a couple of different things. We start in courtyards. We end up in education. We go back to courtyards. A little bit about fair competition in the middle. It's going to be fun. A store that is in a courtyard. The other people in the courtyard can protest against the person who has the store and say, I cannot sleep from the sounds of those who are going and coming into your store. But a person can make various types of vessels and then take them out and sell them in the market. And he cannot uh, protest against the person and say, I can't sleep from the sound of the hammer or the mill or the children. So and in that, there's actually a, some of the manuscripts have which actually doesn't change, uh, change it too much. The Maimonides and has it, and also the Mishnah in the Rushalmi, the Palestinian version, does also has Aval which might just put it into a different category. We'll see. So what's the, so the the question is what's going on in this Mishnah? So a number of things are less than clear. First of all, the Chatzer, the courtyard, must be a joint courtyard. If it's not a joint courtyard, why would anyone else get a say? And we'll see actually that it's not so clear that if it's not a joint courtyard. Other people don't, don't get a say, the shchenim, the neighbors. What is the relationship between the protesting and establishing the store? Can one protest after the store is established or only prior to the store being established? Um, some of the medieval commentators point out, based on the commentary of the Palestinian Talmud, that even if the store was set up with the permission of the other courtyard residents, then somebody can still protest, saying, we, were, we thought that we would be able to tolerate what it is that you're doing in your store, but now we can't. Third question is, what are the children doing here at the end? You have kol patish, kol rechaim, then kol hatinokot. You have the sound of the of the hammer, the sound of the mill, and then the sound of the students. Now this is where, in a couple of minutes, we'll see this is going to go off to a whole different direction. But right here, what's the connection between um, the sound that a hammer makes when you're building something, the sound that a, uh, a mill makes when you're grinding something, and the sound of children? So it is, is it children that are going to buy stuff from the store? Is it children that are being taught? Is it children that are coming to 
for whatever other reason. What is the purpose of the children? What are they doing here? And how are they similar or not? Finally, what is the function of the middle clause of al-osim kelim? Without it, there's a neat symmetry between those things that one can protest against and those things that one cannot protest against. Seems that all of a sudden you have in the middle which seems to that a person can make uh, vessels and go out and sell them in the marketplace, which would seem, and there are those like David Weiss Halivni, have suggested that that was, that the early Mishnah did not have that, and then that was added on at the end of the Mishnah, and then put ultimately and migrated its way into the middle of the Mishnah. Okay, so we go move from the Mishnah, and for the purposes, for these purposes, to notice that Mikol Hatino Kot, it's not clear that what the sound of children here are. The whole Mishnah is talking about a person doing something in their property in a, in a joint courtyard, it seems, perhaps, in a, in a courtyard, and other people being able to protest against what they're doing. And what they're doing seems to impinge on the other people's well-being or the other people's peace of mind because there's too much noise. The Tosefta seems to understand that this is referring to a store in a joint courtyard. It's kind of as an aside. The Tosefta says, that he can't force his neighbor. And the Tosefta also reinforced the idea that the protest is because of the increase in foot traffic. Right? Just like it says here in the first part of the Mishnah, the Tosefta says, There are many people who come to the, apparently the store, hopefully, for the owner of the store, the store becomes popular. A lot of people there. And the Tosefta introduces the idea that the children is lahakrot etatinokot, to teach the children. Okay, the Gemara. Maishna Reisha, Maishna Seifa. So what's the difference between the beginning of the Mishnah and the end of the Mishnah? Stam asked the question. In the beginning, it says when you can protest, and the end of the Mishnah, it says that you can't protest. So what's the difference? Rabbiya says that the end of the Mishnah is actually talking about when it is in another courtyard. So in another courtyard, one cannot protest and say, I can't sleep from the sound of the hammer or the mill or the children. Rabbi says, if that's the case, then it should have just said, in another courtyard, it is permissible. Ella Amarava, Seifa Ata'an Latino Beit Rabban. Rabbi says that actually the end of this Mishnah is referring to students of the school, Beit Rabban. Umitakanat Yeshua ben Gamla Ba'elech. And this is from after the ordinance of Yeshua ben Gamla, who lived in the first century, was a Kohen Gadol, a high priest, lots of different stories. Well, couple of stories about him, though he doesn't, this is the only place that he, uh, one of the only places that he appears in the Bavli. Damar of Yehuda Marav, Baram Zachur Otoa Ish Litov Yeshua Ben Gamla Shmo, Rav Yehuda says in the name of his teacher, Rav, that man is remembered for good, and his name is Yeshua Ben Gamla, Shil Malei Hunish Takeach Torah Yisrael, that without him, Torah would have been completely forgotten from Israel. Shebet Chila Mishiesh Lo Av Malam Torah, in the beginning, one who has a father, his father teaches him Torah. But one who has no father didn't learn Torah at all. My drush limaretem otam limaretem atem. Why it says in in Torah in the first what we call the Kriyat Shema, right in Deuteronomy six, and you shall teach them otam read it limaretem atem, and you shall teach them yourselves. And some of the Rishonim point out that actually. You don't need the limaretem atem, just limaretem from the first word. It says that you shall teach them does the same work. But you shall teach them, meaning that the father teaches the son. This also we see in the Gemara in Kedushin, 
And that the father, and one of the, the commandment obligations that a father has towards their son is to teach them Torah. So what do they do in response to this? What happens if, if a son doesn't have a father? So they ordained that they would place primary school teachers, primary school teachers in Jerusalem. My drosh, how did they derive this? From the verse that says, that the Torah will come out of Zion. Zion here referring or being read as referring to Jerusalem. And therefore, if Torah will come out of Jerusalem, how will it come out of Jerusalem? By having primary school teachers in Jerusalem teaching children. But still, only the person who has a father, the father would bring them up to Jerusalem to, to study. One who didn't have a father did not bring them up to study. And so they ordained that they would put a teacher in every district and uh, bring students into study when they were 16 or 17. And then what would happen is if, you know, they're already teenagers, they're stubborn, and when they're when the, the teacher would get angry at them, they'd kick them and they'd leave, and then they would once again not study Torah. So here we're finally getting to the point where Yoshua ben Gamla is going to ordain his ordinance. And he ordained that they should put the teachers of children in every province and in every city. And, and bring them to school at six years of age or seven years of age. So Rav then said to when they are Until they are six, don't accept them. Once they are from that age and on, accept them. And then stuff them with Torah like a shore, like a, a bull. The image is a sort of, you know, that you have a, a, a bull that goes to a trough and, and eats a lot and you try to make it eat more or you put a sack around its neck to make it to eat all day. So you push Torah in that way. And Rav further said, If you hit a child for discipline, you should only hit him with a sandal strap. In other words, like a little thing and not very hard. The Ka'ari, Ka'ari, the Ka'ari Levi. That which he learns, he learns. That which he doesn't learn, um, he'll figure it out by sitting together with his friends and sitting together. So don't worry about harsh discipline. Okay, so here we have Rava saying that the reason that understanding the end of the Mishnah, Lomikola Tinokot, is actually talking about Tinokot Shabbat those who are studying. And that's from the Takanav Yeshua ben Gamla. Now, it's not clear if Rava said, because this whole piece that we just read is, seems to be a set piece, actually two parts to it. The first part is this story that's said over in the name of Rav by Rav Yehuda. It's also in Hebrew. And it's about this ordinance uh, that in every place in Israel, there will be teachers of primary schools, you know, starting at the age of six or seven. And then uh, comment on that by, by Rav saying to Shmuel Bar Shelat that only from six or seven and why, and, and do not discipline them too much. And that's in Aramaic. This has been pointed to for many, many years by scholars till the past 20 years or so. 
um, as being the foundation of uh, or a proof that there was a broad institutionalized primary school in Palestine during Yeshua ben Gamla's time, which is towards the end of the first temple. Um, the truth is there is uh, absolutely no proof that that actually is true. This text, which is which is uh, citing Yeshua ben Gamla, was a high priest in the time of the temple, but we don't have this in anything earlier than this text here, which in which he's cited by Rav. Um, Rav is 4th century, but it's probably later than that even because it's not, we, this is the earliest time that we have this in case. So it is probable, to, to quote from, from Catherine Hesher, it is possible and probably quite likely the situation of priorly established quote-unquote schools of later centuries is retrojected into the first century here. There's no supporting evidence from any other sources concerning the organization of a Jewish elementary school system before the destruction of the temple in 70 CE. In fact, most of the rabbinic sources which mention schools, Batei Sefer, and teachers, Sofrim Chazanim, we'll see Sofrim later on, stem from the Amoraic period, that is, late antiquity. They refer to schools of a private and informal nature with supplemented parental education rather than replacing it. Um, and this is kind of the general trend of scholarship that this, uh, and, and this also makes sense if we look back in, in the context, and we'll see that the context here is not teaching. I mean, why would uh, the sound of children in the Mishnah all of a sudden move into a sound of an organized school? And we'll see as we go further in the in the Brita that actually there is, seems to be a dispute about whether or not you can stop somebody from starting a school in the courtyard. And that school has no more standing than a bakery or a, uh, a mill house. So this seems to be retrojected back. And the question is why, and maybe we'll get to that a little bit later. Meitve. Now the Gemara asks the question. So here we have a Brita, which says that if one person in the courtyard wanted to become a doctor or an Oman, a, some kind of a bloodletter, or a, a, a garde, a, some kind of a, a, a weaver, or a teacher of young children, the people in the, in the courtyard can stop him from doing that. So that seems to contradict everything we just said. No, because here, what are we talking about here? We're talking about non-Jewish children. So that's why you can stop it. And then actually uh, does not contradict the ordinance of Rabbi Shulman Gamla. Tashma, what about this other source? Two people are sitting in the same courtyard. So in this joint courtyard, one of the people in the courtyard wants to become a doctor or a weaver or a bloodletter or a teacher of, of small children, his fellow can stop him from doing it. So again, that seems to go against this ordinance. This is all talk, talking about children of non-Jews. Tashma. So here, one who has a house in a joint courtyard, behold, he is not allowed to rent it out to a doctor or to a, a bloodletter or to a weaver or to a Jewish teacher or to a non-Jewish teacher, uh, or whether that's a Sofer Yudi is a teacher of Jews or a non-Jewish or a Jewish teacher, and Sofer Armai is teacher of non-Jews or a non-Jewish teacher. 
It's not clear from here. So why? So that seems to contradict what we said before. The Stam tells us that actually, no, this is talking about not a teacher of a local teacher for children, but rather a teacher for the whole city. So that has a whole other level, and that doesn't come under the ordinance of Yeshua ben Gamla. So therefore, you're not allowed to, to do that. Again, this is all talking about the fact that these people will bother the other people in the chatzer, in the courtyard, whether it's because of foot traffic, as the Yushalmi seems to imply, or whether it's because of noise, as it seems to be from the Mishnah. But either way, all the bright notes so far um, seem to go against this notion that this that Yeshua ben Gamla's ordinance was well established. Amarava mitakanad Yeshua ben Gamla ve'elech lo mamtinan yenuka mimata lamata. Rava tells us that from the time of Yeshua ben Gamla's ordinance and on, we do do not take a child from one place to another. In other words, to study Torah. But we can't take him from one synagogue to another. In other words, if he, in one, instead of studying at this place, study at the other place. But if there is a river between them, we don't. So in other words, it's talking about kind of school districts. And if there is a, a, a bridge to cross the river, then we do take him to another place to study. But if the bridge is kind of a plank bridge, which isn't so safe, so then we don't move them from one district to another. Rava says the the sum or the, the, the total children that can be in a class is 25. In other words, one teacher of children can have 25 children in their class. And if you have 50, you get two teachers. So what happens, of course, if you have 40? You get a, a helper, a reish duchna, which is somebody who will say over the class or will help you help the teacher teach. And the city helps him out. The city pays for it. The Amarava, Hai Makri Yenuke de Garis, Rava further says, if there is a teacher of children who knows a bunch, but there is another one who knows more halachot than the first one, so you don't get rid of the first one because there's somebody who knows more. Because if you get rid of the first one and you hire the second one, at least is the way Rosh understands it, then the second guy will say, ah, I don't have to prepare anything because I am so good. Look how they know I am so good. So therefore... They're not going to do anything to me, so I don't have to worry about it. Rav Dimi Minar Da'amar, Kol Shekein Degaris Tvei, Kinat Sofrim Tarbechachma. Rav Dimi from Narada says, No, the other guy knows more, so of course you put in the guy who knows more, because Kinat Sofrim Tarbechachma, the jealousy of scholars, literally scribes, will make wisdom greater. In other words, it's better for scribes to, for, for scholars to compete against each other. In the end, it will make wisdom grow. There were two, Rava says, there were two teachers of children. One knew a lot, but was not that careful in how he taught. And one was very careful in how he taught, but he didn't actually know that much. Motvina and how degar is lodayek. So you you seat, in other words, you hire to teach the one who knows a lot but is not careful. Because if he makes a mistake, so that'll correct itself. In the end, it'll come out in the wash. 
Rabdini Minardas, Amar Rabdini Minarda, says, responds to Rava, Motvina de Dayek Vilogaris. You hire the one actually who is exacting, who doesn't know as much. Shabeshta came into al al, because if you make a mistake, then it stays in, it's washed in. And he brings as a proof this interesting notion. The context there is, is a war, and, and uh, Yoav, who is David's chief of staff, sat there until they destroyed all of the males of Edom. And Yoav, according to that, was in the, that's we know from, the, from, from Tanakh. Um, but then Yoav comes back to David according to the Midrash, according to here to Rav Dimi, or according to the Midrash that he cites. Ki ata David, when he came to David, Amar David said to him, Why did you do what you did? In other words, why did you just destroy all the males? Amar Amalek, because it says in Torah, in, in, uh, in, uh, it says in the Parshat Amalek, in the, in the story of Amalek, you shall destroy, you shall wipe out Zachar Amalek, the males of Amalek. So David replied to him, no, we don't read it Zachar, but Zechar. We read it, we destroy, wipe out the memory of Amalek. Amalek, said, no, well, when I learned it, I, it was read to me as Zachar, male. Azal Shaile the Rabbe. So Yoav went off and he went to ask his teacher, Amarle, Heach Akritan, how did you read this to us? Amarle, so Yoav's teacher said, replied, Zachar, male. Shakal Safsira Lamiktales. Yoav pulled out his sword and wanted to kill him. Amarle Amai, his teacher said, Why are you going to kill me? Amarle Dichtiv, because it says in the verse in Proverbs, Arur Osem Lechat Hashem Rimayab. Cursed is the one who does the, the work of God fraudulently. Amarle, so the teacher went back, Shavke Gavra the Lakum Barur. So he said, Leave that person, meaning me, to stand to exist under a curse. Amarle, Yoav replied, Ktiv Arur Moneacharbomidam. And in the end of that verse it says, Cursed is the one who withholds their sword from blood. Meaning, in other words, when you have to kill somebody, you have to kill somebody. And there are those who said that he killed him and those who said that he didn't kill him. It's interesting. The story ends without telling us which one it is. A couple of interesting things here. First of all, this is a very good example. We have a number of these with with David, retrojecting David back to a time in which this kind of rabbinic understanding was David was part of the discourse of rabbinic understanding, right? So secondly, that um, Yoav and David understood what happened there, not as part of military strategy, but as part of how do you read this pasuk? Third, the fact that Zecher and Zachar is actually one of those things that the Masoretes established, that it's Zecher or Zecher, but not Zachar, that that is something that was not, apparently, the Nikud, the points, the pointing was not established in written because it was taught. One of those things that was that was taught by Pab, perhaps the pointing as opposed to the written, so you could learn it as Zachar as opposed to male as opposed to remembering. And the final thing is that, of course, Yoav, when he confronts his teacher, his instinct is to kill him because he is a Sartzavai, is David's chief of staff. He is an, a warrior, and it's just 
kind of a, a, a little little moral here, a little parable here, where we see that warriors, their first instinct is war. And then he goes and he, he, he finds that also in the verse, Cursed is the one who stops himself, stops his, his sword from killing. So it is fascinating that we leave the story without a resolution. Rava, Rava continues, Makra Yinuka Shatla Tabcha Omana Kulan Mutarin So all these professions, one who teaches children, a planter, a tanner, a bloodletter, a teacher for a province, all of them are able to be fired immediately. Mutarin Omdim. They are permitted to be fired immediately without any warning. The general rule is that any loss which will not return, so the per- that person is meaning um, they don't need to be given warning before they are fired. We saw a little bit of this earlier in the first paragraph when we were talking about the dispute over land. There we had a story of a shatala. Actually, not here, but in Bavamitsya. Okay, this week's episode is brought to you by Matzabrai, the food that wouldn't be a food if not for Pesach. Like many foods whose origin story is in deprivation, hunger, lack of resources, Yushalmi Kugel comes to mind. Matzabrai is that big fish in a very small fishbowl, one-eyed man in a land of the blind kind of food in its context, where there is no other food, it is a delicacy. Just don't try it on a non-Passover time. Matzabrai, proving that any food can be a delicacy. Amar Huna, Hai Bar Mavoa, I have to stop here for a minute, say that we're now moving from education stories or education law to a law about uh, competition. Who is allowed to stop who from opening a store next to their store in the courtyard? So before we move there, we should note that here Rava seems to be laying out all kinds of ordinances about education, right? Those ordinances where, which if we went with the notion that Yeshua ben Gamla had laid out this ordinance about education several centuries before Rava and in a different country, Rava's ordinances might not have even been necessary. It's also not easy or historically legitimate necessarily to say that just because we have a halakha, we have a law about something, that that's actually what happened, you know, on the order of just because... When people remember a long time ago, like three weeks ago, when people drove on on the freeways, when it said the speed limit is 65 miles per hour, a historian cannot come along and therefore say nobody drove faster than 65 miles an hour. That's obviously wrong. The reason you have laws is to correct people's behavior and try to get them to stop doing what they are actually doing. So it's not it's very hard always to go from law to history. So the question here is why does this why do these this story of Yeshua ben Gamla become prominent Dafka specifically in the Bavli in the Babylonian Talmud at this point in history and I don't have a, a really good answer but one suggestive thing is that in the Sasanian period which was the period of the Talmud in Persia and Iran the a noble child would begin attending school at, quote-unquote, the proper age. And the proper age was between five and seven years. And so we have stories of Ardashir began school at seven years, Bahram at five years, and then would have completed general training and religious studies by the age of 15 years. And also, as others have shown, like Shai Sekunda, for example, that the study of religious texts was prized in Sasanian Persia. So it could have been that the rabbis said, oh, 
study is important for us also. And it must have been important all the way back. And as a way of working out what that would look like to retroject the uh, conception of having schools every place into from Bavel, but back retrojected back into Palestine, uh, Eretz Yisrael in centuries before would have been a way of saying how important that was. So that's possibly why this Yeshua ben Gamla story pops up here in the Bavli in the time of Rava. Rava, who is identified with the Sasanian period, um, Rava and Abaya appear several hundred times in the Bavli and appear tens of t- only tens of times in the Yerushalmi. So Rava and Abaya are the move to Bavel. Uh, move and and uh, anchor the Bavli. And so this seems to be embedded in something of a Sasanian moment. I don't, and I, I just want to suggest that this might be it. I have no more than a suggestion here. Now we move on to legitimate competition. Amar Rav Huna. Rav Huna says, Hi, Bar Mavod, Oki If there was one, somebody in the courtyard who set up a mill, and another guy in the courtyard set up uh, his own mill. So the first guy, so the law is that the first guy can stop the second guy from doing it. He said, because you are stopping my living. You are not allowing me to, to make a living. You know, literally, you're not allowing my life. You're stopping my life. But it means you're not allowing me to make a living. So the Stam says that there is a, a, a support for this. The bright that says you have to, if one person sets up a fishnet, a fishing place, literally a fish trap, and another person wants to set up another one, so the second person has to make sure that his fishing area is the amount of a uh, that a fish swims away from the first fish. And how much is that? And Rabbi Baravuna says it is a parasang, which is about three or three and a half miles away. So that seems to support Ravuna, who says you can't set up next to it. What is, and so, but then, Shani Dagim Diyayav Sayara. So actually, but then he said, no, maybe fish are different because you need a, you have to set up a, a net for the fish. And Rashi and later on, uh, Rashi in the early 12th century, and later on the Yad Ramah, Romero Levi Abulafia, in the 14th century, both understand that this means that when you set up a fishing trap or place, it's a place that you bring food so that the fish will come to that place. And if somebody sets up food next to it, right next to it, so then the fish will see the food of the second person and will go away from the first place and go to the second place. And it says, if you're taking the fish right out of the first guy's net. Now, being somebody who grew up in Brooklyn, I have no idea how one fishes, so we'll just go with Rashi and the Yad Ramah. And as a total aside, for those who are keeping score, don't know how many of those of you there are, Rameer Levi Abulafia, his explanation here is word for word Rashi's explanation, but he doesn't quote Rashi. That, I've noticed, is, is a recurring phenomenon. Don't know what to say about it right now. But if you have any ideas, get in touch. Amrle Ravina, back to the Gemara. Fish are different. Amrle Ravina, the Rava Ravina said to Rava, Lema Ravhuna, the Lo Damark Rav Yehuda. Let's say Ravhuna was uh, following along with Rabbi Yehuda, the Tana. It's not, because it says in a Mishnah, Rabbi Yehuda Omer, Rabbi Yehuda says, Lo Yechalek Chanvani Klayot Vegozin Latinokot, Mavnei Shemargilin Etzlo. A store owner should not 
divvy out nuts um, and and seeds to children because they then uh, will come to him for more. In other words, you don't give out candy to kids to make them come to your store. And the sages actually say that that's okay. That's a mission in Bavmetziah. No. Okay. Yes, it seems that Rabbi Yehuda is, is a support for Rav Huna, but could be even if you go according to the sages who say that that's okay, they also support Rav Huna. Why? Because the machloket between the sages, the dispute between the sages and Rabbi Yehuda is only in the case where he said, where one guy says, I will give out nuts, which probably means walnuts, you give out almonds. But, uh, so that, in that case, the sages say that's okay, because everybody's giving out something, so the kids could choose. They want walnuts, they want almonds. But here, sages will, but in Rav Huna's case, sages would also agree that since it's a head-to-head competition, you can, the guy can say, you're, you're stopping me from making a living. In the case where it's a head-to-head competition, both setting up mills, I could say, you're stopping me from making a living. Meitve. So I ask a question. Person sets up a store next to his friend's store, or fellow store. I don't know how much of a friend he's going to be after he sets up the other store. Next is, he sets up a store next to his fellow's store, or a bathhouse next to his fellow's bathhouse. And he cannot protest. Cannot stop it. Could say to him, you're doing that in your property and I'm doing this in my property. Okay, so that seems to completely oppose what Rabbi Yehuda said and completely oppose what Rabbi Huna said. Tanai de Tanya. So actually it's a machloga tanaim because we see the opposite in the following bright. Kofin b'nei mavo'ot zeh et zeh shlo lo hushiv b'neihen lo chayat v'lo burski lo melamei tinokot v'lo achad m'bnei balei amaniyot. The residents of an alley can force each other to not allow a tailor or a tanner or a teacher of young children, nor one of the craftspeople, like weavers and stuff like that, to settle amongst them. And the Stam asks, But if it's his neighbor, he's not allowed to uh, force him? Even if it's his neighbor, he's allowed to force them to not settle in. So here we have, so this is the bright of the Tanaitic ballast for Rav Huna. So it seems to be a machlok amongst the dispute amongst the Tanaim, the early sages, um, of whether or not you're allowed to stop this head-on, head-to-head competition within a courtyard or within an alley. Amar Rav Huna braid Rav Yoshua, Rav Huna, the son of Rav Yoshua, said, Pshita li barmata barmata achriti matimake. So it is simple, it is obvious to me that a person in one town is allowed to stop a person from another town to come and set up shop in a competing business, business that he's doing. And if the other guy is actually doesn't live in the town, but he pays the, the rent, the tax, the royal tax on the towns, so then you can't stop him because then he has some investment in the town. He's part of the town. And one person in the courtyard cannot stop another person in the courtyard from setting up a competing shop because he's in the same courtyard and he has he's also uh, uh, he has rights in that courtyard by Rav Huna Braid Rav Yeshua. But so after that, Rav Huna Braid Rav Yeshua asked, Mivoa Arbar Mivoa Achrina Mai. 
But what's the case if you somebody's sitting in one alley? Can that person stop a person who's sitting in another alley from setting up a competing shop, a head-to-head shop, right? In other words, so if it's the same alley, then you're not allowed to. If it's the same, if it's coming into your city from another city, you can stop them from doing it. If it's somebody, though, who is invested in the city, you can't stop them. So what is that level of rights that a person has in moving to a place, whether it's a city or, or an alleyway? So the Gemara, so here it says, what about somebody who is setting up not in the same alley as you, but in the alley next door? Teku. My answer is that this, this question stands. We don't have an answer to this question. Amar of Yosef, we're going to stop here. Amar of Yosef, umodi ravhuna b'makre dardiki la matzi ma'akeb. Rav Yosef said that Rav Huna conceded that in teaching children, to a, one who teaches children, you're not allowed to stop them. In other words, if you know if another teacher of children comes in, you're not allowed to stop them. The Amar Mar cannot sofrim because of this saying we saw earlier: jealousy among scholars makes wisdom greater. Now, there's the uh, statement in the middle. It's in the in the um, printed editions, and in some of the manuscripts that. Preceding cannot so from Terbel Chachma, Ezra Tikain Lanli Israel Shimo Shivin Sofer, but Sad Sofer, Venechosh Dilma Ati Shule, Amalek cannot so from Terbel Chachma. Ezra, I'm talking about Ezra, the scribe from, Ez, from the Tanakh, from the time of the rebuilding the Second Temple, coming up from exile. Ezra ordained in Israel that they would have a one teacher next to another teacher, scribe next to a scribe, and then they ask, but would that not leave them to? Be careless, because you have somebody else there to catch up on him. Says no, because cannot so from Jealousy among scribes makes wisdom reproduce or makes wisdom greater. Okay, so we come back. This brings us back at the end to the idea of teaching, with which we started. However, it's not education in the sense of a set of you know institutionalized primary schools or higher education. It's more of education as a profession and a profession which is in competition, educators in competition with other educators. It's not set up, it's not a state run, but it seems to be, you know, if somebody wants to set up in their house, this is uh, reinforcing the Tosefta where it says uh, what happens if a person has a house and then divides it in half and one, he rents out one side to somebody who teaches children are the neighbors then allowed to complain about that? And this is kind of analogous to in contemporary times to zoning laws, zoning restrictions. What are you allowed to have? What aren't you allowed to have? Who's allowed to protest? Who's allowed to stop? Who's allowed to impinge upon the property rights of the owner of the property? And that's it side by side with this notion that seems to be coming up now of the importance of education. The Rava seems to be the holder of the banner of the importance of education and institutionalizing education in a certain way. But this is much later than Yeshua ben Gamla that in the first centuries, this is already at least the fourth century in Babylon. Okay, we're going to stop here. Thank you for spending this time with me. My name is Aryeh Cohen. You can follow me on the Twitters at at Irmiklat, I-R-M-I-K-L-A-T. That's I-R-M-I-K-L-A-T, Irmiklat. And I hope this 40 minutes has been a little refuge from the craziness that's going on on the outside. Now, back to work. I want to, as always, thank Ellie Unger-Sargon, whose sure hands on the control makes this podcast much more intelligible and hopefully enjoyable. And 
I hope to see you again next week. If you like the podcast, please go to the podcast page, give me a review, give me a, a like, tell your friends, bring everybody along. Hopefully, we'll see you all next week. Hug some ass.